Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network's New Books and Jewish Studies channel. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. I am honored today to be in dialogue with Michael Nukavitz. Michael is an independent scholar who publishes on topics in Jewish and general European history and philosophy. Besides university teaching, he has held executive positions with agencies that work with refugees and victims of political violence. This annotated translation of the Yiddish memoir of an aid worker in Ukraine during the Russian Civil War is Michael's first book. We are here today to discuss the volume he has just edited and translated. Eli Gumener's A Ukrainian Chapter, A Jewish Aid Worker's Memoir of Sorrow in Podolia, 1918-1920, translated and edited by Michael Nutkevitz, published in Bloomington, Indiana by Slavica Publishers, 2022. Thank you for being with us today. I couldn't be more grateful. Well, thank you for inviting me, Ari. I look forward to our discussion. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Um, what formative events in your life inspired you to pursue this project? How did you evolve in regard to your interest in refugees and victims of political violence? What led you between that work to this current project? Can you tell us about yourself sure. autobiographically? Yeah, I um, am the children of Holocaust survivors, but Holocaust survivors who escaped the worst of the uh, period because uh, in 1939, they left Poland and they went to the uh, Russian sector. Poland, as we all know, was partitioned between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. So they escaped the occupation of, um, of Poland by the Germans. And then in 1941, were lucky enough to receive transit visas to Japan. And so they went to Japan and lived in Kobe for about six months. And then again, pure luck, got visas to go to Canada. And this was right before Pearl Harbor. It's one of the last ships in Pearl Harbor. So they came to uh, Toronto and after a few years moved to the United States and specifically to Los Angeles, where I grew up. So I was in a family of European Jews, uh, a Yiddish-speaking family, a family in which uh, the stories of uh, Poland and Lithuania and life in the old country, so to speak, was uh, very, very prominent in the family. My father was a a well-known leader of the Jewish Socialist Party called the Bund, 
uh, specifically the leader of the Tsukumts, which was the Bund's youth movement in the city of Lodz. My mother was a an art teacher uh, in, in Poland, uh, and they had interesting lives, lives that were obviously cut off, but they made uh, interesting lives for themselves here in the United States. My father became a social worker for the Jewish community centers, uh, and ended up working with refugees who came from the Soviet Union in the 60s and the 70s. My mother was an art teacher in various Jewish institutions. So it was um, uh, it was from them that I uh, had a kind of a strong Jewish consciousness and a strong sense of history. Uh, and um, I, I am really grateful to, to that. When I entered the university, I decided to uh, study history um, because I wanted to know kind of more about the past uh, and the perhaps the circumstances of the present and where where the future might bring. Uh, and but interestingly enough, even though I studied with a very wonderful Jewish studies professor at UCLA, Amos Funkenstein. Yes, uh, a blessed memory. Um, I ended up working in uh, early modern Europe, that is what we consider 17th to 19th century, uh, the early modern intellectual history. And I wrote my dissertation on uh, the history of political thought, comparing a number of uh, political thinkers in the 17th century. But since Amos, my uh, dissertation advisor, taught mostly classes and seminars in Jewish studies, of course, I sat in on all of those or took all of those classes. So in a sense, my um, it was almost like a double major, early modern Europe and Jewish, and Jewish history. Uh, when I finished my PhD, uh, the job market, of course, was very uh, rough, uh, but I was fortunate to find a job as director of student activities at the Hillel Foundation in Washington University, where I taught as an adjunct at WashU and worked with students on campus at Washington University, and then uh, went to the University of Missouri, which just started a religious studies program. And again, there was no Jewish studies uh, person, so I ended up teaching Jewish studies. Uh, but it was a, a, not a tenure track position. And I am an only child. My parents are getting older, so I moved back to LA. And in Los Angeles, I um, took the job as the first executive director of the very first Holocaust Center in United States at that time was called the Martyrs Memorial and Museum of the Holocaust. Uh, now it's called the Los Angeles Museum of the Holocaust. But what was interesting for me is almost it was almost an, a, a second career in that I never thought about. Of course, I thought about the Holocaust, even though it wasn't directly my field, but also because I was politically engaged by inclination, I thought, how do we expand the I, the themes, what we learn about Holocaust to other issues, specifically social justice issues? So as a director of a survivor-founded Holocaust museum, I began to expand the idea of 
of, of Holocaust social justice to um, other um, contemporary issues as well. So in a sense, I think my second career was as a museum professional and out of that, maybe a third career, which is as a social justice educator. Uh, after I um, left that job, I was there for eight years. Um, I um, was the dean of, or the interim dean of the Cleveland College of Jewish Studies in Cleveland, which doesn't exist anymore. Then came back to LA to be the senior historian of the uh, Shoah Foundation, the foundation established by Steven Spielberg to record the testimony of Holocaust survivors. And when uh, Spielberg decided to stop the interviews at 52,000 interviews, uh, I was uh, privileged to um, find a job as the executive director of the Program for Torture Victims in Los Angeles, uh, where I served for uh, six years before moving to New Mexico. And my job in New Mexico was again with refugees. And I worked for Catholic Charities as director of refugees, re re refugee resettlement, but also not giving up my interest and love of Jewish studies I was an adjunct instructor at the University of New Mexico for about 12 years until I retired, at least from paid work. Uh, but now I'm an independent scholar. I was able to finish this book and I lecture uh, in New Mexico on various uh, Jewish topics as well. What inspired you to get involved in this particular translation project? Ah, well, I knew growing up that my mother, Betty Gumaner Nutkevich, had an older brother that had passed away, had been killed during the Holocaust. In fact, my middle name, Ellie, I, is named after him. But she didn't talk much about him, and I could see it was very painful. So I didn't ask, as most kids or many kids don't ask. When my parents passed away, they had a vast Yiddish library, so vast that I knew that there's no way I could handle so many Yiddish books. So I went through the entire library. I packed most of them up and sent them to the Yiddish Book Center. Um, but there was one book that I came across, among a few others that I kept, but there was one book that I came across, a slim volume, uh, that when I opened it up, I saw that the author was my mother's brother, Ellie Guminer. She had never mentioned that he had written a book. I had no idea. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. But I put it away. This was a good 20, 25 years ago because I was working, I was raising children. I didn't have time to do a translation. But when I retired four or five years ago, I decided to go back to the book to see what was in it. And at first I thought, if anything, this will be an homage to a relative. This will be something that I can give my children without knowing even really what was in the book. As I started to read the book, I realized that the book was something between a reportage 
uh, and uh, and um, and memoir, and that in fact it was about a very particular subject, Ellie Guminer's time as an aid worker in Ukraine, and specifically Podolia, a, a, a an administrative unit in the Russian um, Empire, which is uh, in the south uh, western part. And as I began to translate it, I realized this was more than just a, a family memoir. In fact, it was a, a, a book about an interesting period in history that um, we, there wasn't a lot of work, academic work, not a lot of work on Ukraine, not a lot of work on aid work, not a lot of work on what's in Yiddish they call a klautor, an activist, the the kind of activist that was on the ground, not the famous ones who have written um, diaries or reports, but an average worker, aid worker, uh, who was uh, uh, in the trenches, in the killing fields of, of, of Ukraine. And so um, I um, started to translate it and to learn a lot about Ukrainian history, the Russian Civil War, which is, serves as the background for the book, uh, and and even Ellie himself, who who, who I didn't know uh, a lot about, because as I mentioned, my mother didn't talk about him a lot. So that's how I got into it. Can you share with us a plot summary of a Ukrainian chapter? What sure. story does this memoir tell? So the book is uh, divided into, it's a short book and it was it's divided into a number of sections. One is the preface. And in the preface, which is a kind of a personal statement, I do talk about how I, um, uh, uh, why, how I found the book, why I wrote it, basically what we just spoke about with a little bit more uh, detail. And then uh, from the preface, uh, I have a historical introduction because I'm gearing the book not only to professionals in the field, people who are interested in Eastern European Jewish history, people who are interested in pogrom history, but people who are interested in memoir uh, as well. Uh, so, it, but also the the intelligent, uh, interested non-specialist, and to do so, um, I decided to write a um, an orientation to the memoir's content. So, in the introduction, I do talk about the challenges of unpacking such a book. Th then, I do talk about the biography of Guminer, a brief history of the Russian Civil War as it was played out in Ukraine. Um, I discuss aid work in that period, party politics among the Jews in Ukraine, in Podolia specifically, and then finally, uh, Gumener's decision to leave Ukraine after the Bolsheviks gained complete control of Ukraine. So the memoir begins, the timeline begins actually in uh, January and March 1919. Though Gumner does start his story, it goes back to the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 and the declaration of uh, Ukraine as, as an independent state in January 19. 
18. So briefly, the historical chronology really does begin with the Russian Revolution, because at the beginning of the Russian Revolution, Ukrainian nationalists thought that Ukraine would become a federation as part of the emerging Soviet Union. But when the Bolsheviks came to power, the Ukrainian nationalists decided to go their own way and declared independence and sovereignty. And that was in January, 1918. That month, the Red Army invaded Ukraine. Uh, and that's, they invaded Ukraine for two, two large reasons. One is that they were fighting the anti-Bolshevik forces, which were known as the Volunteer Army or the White Army. But they were also fighting the Ukrainian nationalists who wanted to break away from the emerging Soviet Union. Further, there were other wars and other civil wars that were played out in the Ukraine. So in short, Ukraine became the battlefield for competing armies, each of which had a different goals. The Red Army, in order to keep Ukraine within the Bolshevik Soviet sphere, the White Army to undo the revolution, the Ukrainian army and the Ukrainians who wish to uh, solidify their independence, the Polish army that had claims to parts of Ukraine, the German army, which also had claims to Ukraine. All of this was in the context of World War I and in the context of the Russian Civil War. That's where the story begins. Um, in that period, the worst years in terms of Jewish experience during the Russian Civil War in Ukraine was the, the, year, the years 1918 to 1920, and especially 1919. This is when the worst pogrom period uh, occurred. And uh, Guminer talks about that period. He talks about uh, the attempt to bring aid to beleaguered Jewish communities. He talks about the, the unfortunate and tragic political discord between Jewish parties in this period which is uh, sad uh, and uh, uh, somewhat, I guess, to us inexplicable. And I do address that uh, towards the end of the introduction. Um, and he talks about the uh, final pacification of Ukraine uh, in uh, late 1920, early 1921, and the effect of that pacification uh, on aid to the Jewish communities, and then his decision to leave Ukraine after the Soviets uh, were entrenched there. So that's the broad content of the book and also the kind of uh, uh, chronological uh, period. 
of, of the book. It's definitely not a full history of pogroms. It's not a full history of the Russian Civil War. It's not even a history of, of Ukraine in that period. I call it a micro history. The, 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 the experience of a worker, an aid worker in the trenches for two years, even though he was in Ukraine much longer, we know that from 1915 to 1921. But he writes about those two dreadful years and he writes about one specific area. That's why it's a micro history. Can you narrate the timeline of the events in this memoir for us? Sure. Um, as I mentioned, uh, he starts, the memoir starts in January and March 1919. And what he, he starts with, uh, he tells us a little bit about the conditions in Podolia, that Podolia was a backwards uh, region of the Tsarist Empire. Uh, that uh, even he said before World War One there wasn't even trains to Podolia. Uh, he talks a little bit about um, Jewish uh, life in Podolia, but it's not uh, a, a strong uh, sociological uh, uh, analysis of of of, of Podolia. Uh, most of the Jews. There were about 3 million Jews, uh, 12%, uh, 3 million people in Podolia. 12% were Jewish, uh, poor, underdeveloped, most of them artisans, merchants. They ran taverns and so forth. So he gives us a little bit of background to that. And then he immediately gets into the pogrom period. And uh, what he tells us is that, that the shock to Podolian and to Ukrainian Jews in general was the pogrom in uh, Proskurov in February 1919. Where's Proskurov? Proskurov was a town just about 45 miles northeast of where Guminer did most of his work, which was a city called Komenets Poldosk. Komenets Poldosk, a Jewish town in a way that were 23,000 Jews. That was about half of the population of, of Komenets Poldosk. And this uh, Proskurov pogrom occurred uh, in February on, February 15th, 1919, and it was a terrible shock to the Jewish community. It's estimated that between maybe 800 to 1,500 Jews were killed. And the way it came about was that this was in the context, of course, of the fight between the Red Army, the White Army, the Ukrainian uh, forces. Uh, there was a rumor that the Bolsheviks in uh, Proskurov were going to uh, initiate an uprising. And so in order to put down the uprising, the directory, which was the government uh, administration of the Ukrainian National Republic, uh, sent a, uh, troops to Proskurov 
led by a uh, guy named Ivan Semesenko to put down the uprising. Uh, now it's controversial whether in fact the Bolsheviks who were in the communist Bolsheviks who were in the town really wanted to instigate an uprising. Gumner says yes. They did. Others in other sources say no, but it became the pretext to enter the town of Proskurov to put down an uprising. But that uprising became a pogrom. Uh, and uh, this was a terrible shock to the Jewish community because it was followed just a few days later on February 18th by another pogrom by the same battalions uh, e Ukrainian battalions fighting in the name of Ukrainian National Republic in a town called Felshtin, F-E-L-S-H-T-I-N, a town which is about 93 miles northwest of Komenets-Poldosk. And had maybe around 1,800 Jews. There, there was no question of uh Bolsheviks or, or communist sympathizers instigating a revolt. They had just seen just two weeks before what would happen if there was a, um, a revolt or agitation from the Bolsheviks in the town. And the Jewish community begged the Jewish leftists or communist Bolsheviks, please, don't do anything. You saw what happened in 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 Proskurov, and in fact, they agreed that they, they would not agitate. They would not instigate an uprising. Despite that, despite that, the Ukrainian troops went into the town and uh, perpetrated a um, pogrom. And Gumner talks about those and says that it was those pogroms that 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 ended this more or less ended the sympathy that the Jewish community by and large had with the emerging Ukrainian National Republic that Jews would have supported the Ukrainian National Republic which had a lot of socialists in in its um in its government and which also was committed Per its constitution, to give Jews, Russians, and Poles autonomy, cultural autonomy, and so in some ways it looked like it was the the Ukrainian National Republic was going to emerge as a socialist, progressive, if we can use a, a modern term, uh, government that would give autonomy, cultural autonomy to the three. Uh, large minorities in Ukraine, the Jews, the Russians, and the Poles. That never happened for many reasons. One, and probably the major reason actually, is that the Ukrainian National Republic never had the stability in the short years that it was uh, alive, never had the stability to enact uh, a, its 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 goals. It was always at war. It was always beleaguered. Uh, and it lasted really only a, a very short time. But the pogroms 
were enough to um, uh, for the for the Ukrainian National Republic to lose by and large it's the support of of Jews, many of whom look to the Bolsheviks for salvation from the um, uh, from from the pogromists. So that's uh, essentially um, what he talks about in 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 the book. Uh, he ends by uh, talking about the pacification, uh, the conquest, really, of Ukraine uh, by the, the Red Army. And he was still working throughout this period in aid, whether it was the Ukrainian government that uh, was ruling, and then when they were driven out, it was the Bolsheviks that were ruling, and then they were driven out, and it was the Poles whatever regime was there, he kept working as an aid worker. But when the Soviets came in um, and the Sovietization of Ukrainian society began, he then felt that he himself would be a target as a socialist and as a Jew. And he left Ukraine forever, went back to Vilna, where near where he was born, and then ultimately to Novogrodov, uh, where he uh, lived the rest of his life. What does this memoir teach us about the character and psychology of violence? Well, I mean, your your question is 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 right in that uh, violence is a, a large part of this of this story. There's there's no there's no question about it. It's a, a sad story. It's a tragic story. It's um, a story that's not easy to to to, to read and, and to, to think about. But, um, and, and your, your question is somewhat philosophical as well, because I think that what it teaches us about violence is a, a, a universal question. Uh, and, and one of, and I would, I'll answer it in a way, in a, a kind of social justice uh, way, in a social justice philosophical way, which is that human beings have difficulty navigating the other. Once they have identified a group or an individual as the other, and have decided that that other is so unlike us that they cannot be part of us. They cannot be part of our nation. They cannot be part of our state. They cannot be part of our culture. Once they've made those that differentiation and say and said, you cannot be part of who we are because you are so different, then that other becomes a potential target. When the majority decides that for whatever reason, that other is uh, a threat to the majority, then they will find a way to delimit, to um, discriminate against, to even eliminate those that they consider the other. So I'll give you now a concrete example. Many Ukrainians in this period saw Jews as sympathetic to the Bolsheviks. And the reason is because they saw 
or believe they saw a disproportionate number of Jews in the Red Army, in on the Red Army, in the in in the uh, in the Bolshevik movement. I mean, Trotsky himself was uh, who was head of the Red Army during the Russian Civil War was Jewish. So they knew, you know, that there were a lot of Jews who were involved in uh, in in the Russian Revolution, and uh, so the extreme Ukrainian nationalists saw, therefore, the Bolsheviks, of course, as the enemy. The Red Army was trying to conquer Ukraine, and if they believed the Ukrainian nationalists believed that Jews were more sympathetic to the Bolsheviks. Well, then Jews would possibly serve as a as a as a fifth column in Ukraine, and and a, and as a danger to Ukrainian goals. So they became scapegoats. Uh, that's what I mean by saying that once the majority uh, sees the other as a threat and and not sympathetic and unsympathetic to the goals. Then uh, they, you know, they will um, uh, possibly uh, attack uh, and and somehow delimit the, uh, the the people who they consider quote their enemy. So that's what it teaches us about violence. That violence is part of the toolkit of majorities or minorities who have power, who who see the other whether the other is religiously the other, ethnically the other, politically the other, violence can be a toolkit to uh, eliminate um, the, you know, the, 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 other, the other. Which primary and secondary sources helped you most in editing and translating this memoir? Ah, well, um, you know, this was mostly done during the COVID years. <laughs> and if I had had, if the world was open and I had had adequate funding, really what this project could have been is something very different. It might have been a full-blown biography of an aid worker uh, in uh, the interwar period. But for that, one would have to go to Belarus, to Minsk, where there are archives uh, that would have covered the years that Gumener was in Novogrudok, where he, he, he ended his life. He was there from 1925 to 1941. It would have meant going to Vilna, where he was educated and where his family came from. It would have involved going to Kiev to look at uh, uh, archives there. Uh, it would have involved going to New York and spending more time in Yivo, so it would have been a very different book, perhaps, uh, than the micro history it is, if I had unlimited resources. But I didn't. Despite that, I had some very, very good uh, resources that I could go to. So one of the most important for me was that I was privileged enough to get a um, uh, a short term uh, a fellowship to the archives of the Joint Distribution Committee in New York. Why was that important? Because the joint was the uh, aid organization that did the most work uh, in the interwar period on behalf of Jews uh, who were caught 
in uh, the throes of World War One, uh, and especially you know 1914 to 1918, and even beyond that to 1921. So I worked uh, in the archives of the JDC, and in a way. It was a mirror image of what I was reading about in Gumner's report. So the JDC worked as best it could under very difficult situations uh, in in Podolia, rather late, uh, because uh, it was a war zone. Uh, And Gumner does talk about the JDC, and the JDC archives talked about Gumner in some cases. So they were a very, very important source for me. And then there was a lot of, you know, kind of great uh, secondary work that's been done uh, lately. I want to to mention the recent work of Jacqueline Granick, uh, who wrote a book, the first really full-blown book on Jewish humanitarian aid in the interwar period. Her book came out right before I submitted my book to Slavica, but uh, she and I um, corresponded and I learned a lot from her and from her articles. Uh, Same thing with Polly Zavadik-Divker at the University of Delaware, who uh, was also and has written on aid work in the interwar period. She was also an inspiration because she translated the war diary of of Ansky, who of course was a very famous author, but was also an aid worker uh, in uh, in this period, a little bit later, a little bit earlier rather than Guminer. And in some ways I saw the translation of Guminer's memoir, which covers a later period than when Ansky, than Ansky's diary as a complement to the work that Pauli did. Ansky worked as an aid worker up to about 1915. Uh, the, the memoir of Guminer covers 1918, 1919, and the beginning of 1920. So it was a nice compliment. And then there was other um, uh, scholars who've done very fine work on pogroms and, uh, and Eastern European history, especially Russian history. So that was really, these were my go-to, JDC was my go-to archive, YIVO to some extent, and also colleagues who've been been working this area. Can you opine on the memoir's readability? That's uh, very interesting. uh, Writing, translating this was very, very uh, challenging uh, because it's written in Yiddish. It's written in a, an idiomatic Yiddish. It's not a literary work. That's why it's. I would say it. It's somewhere between a reportage and and memoir. Gumner says at the very beginning that this work, which was published in Vilnius in 1921, is based on a. Uh, a large archive that he lost. Where he lost it, I I, I don't know. Whether it was fleeing Ukraine uh, or uh, back to Vilna in 1921, I don't know. So he's writing this with very few archival material at hand. Uh, So he doesn't have um, a lot of, it's not a literary work. He doesn't have a lot of personal, but some, 
poignant uh, sections. Uh, he it jumps around somewhat um, chronologically, which is why I thought it was important to write a, a clear historical introduction and to annotate uh, as much as I could, because the average reader is not going to uh, be familiar with some of the names uh, of colleagues and the actors in this period, some of the names of the organizations that he was working uh, with, some of the events, if this micro history. So it was very, very challenging. I'll give you a very concrete example. Many times he talks about um, organizations that have the word central in Yiddish, central in it, in them, the name central. But there are so many organizations with the word central that you don't know which one it is. It's not like you and I would know the difference between, uh, you know, the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, and uh, the uh, uh, Joint Distribution Committee. Uh, they're different. The names are clear. But to talk about the central committee of this and that uh, is it was sometimes very difficult to understand exactly what organization, organization he was talking about. So what I did in the annotation is I would state when I, I just didn't know. But when I could reconstruct, then I would annotate it and say, oh, he's talking about the Central Committee for Aid, the one in Kiev, or no, no, the Central Committee for Aid, the one in Komenets-Poldosk. So that was the challenge of of, of of readability as you as as you you know asked uh nevertheless um it's not a hard read in yiddish or i hope in english i tried to um keep to his yiddish in, in the translation and not prettify it or make it more literary than it is and but i think it's a valuable uh read because it gives us insight into what it was like one man's experience in the um, in the killing fields uh, in this period. Can you tell us about Moises Lebowski? Why is he notable? Can you explain the artwork of his that appears on the cover of your book sure. and interpret thank it for us? Yes, thank you for uh, for uh, asking that question. Um, it's something that uh, was uh, unexpected. I, I didn't know what I would use as the cover. Of course, this is podcast, so you can't see the cover. But in the original 1921 uh, publication, uh, the publisher, and I have no idea if it's the publisher's decision or if it was Gumner's decision, has a very striking pen and ink drawing. It's uh, It's easy to describe. It's, we see a figure, a bearded man, obviously a Jew, because he has a talit, uh, raising his hands in despair, raising his hands in anguish over the limp, presumably dead body of a woman and a child. It's very striking. One has to look at it for a while to even understand 
kind of what it's telling us or what it's like. And when I looked at this drawing, I thought, wow, that would be really great if Slavica would agree to use this, um, this image. But I wanted to know more about the image. Who did it? Who is the artist? When, why did he choose this kind of, uh, th th this, this graphic? And the only thing I saw were the two Hebrew or Yiddish letters, Mem Lamed. That's all there was. So, of course, I went to Professor Google and I looked up as best I could what Jewish artist in the interwar period could be Mem Lamet. I had no idea. And so I uh, wrote to um, uh, David uh, Mazover at the Yiddish Book Center, and he suggested that I write to the Pauline Museum in Warsaw. And they suggested that I write to the Vilna Gaon Museum of Jewish History in Vilnius. And they had the art historians who identified the artist. And that was, in fact, uh, Moises uh, uh, Lebowski. When I looked up who he was, I was blown away by the some of the parallels between him and Guminer and the and the Guminer family. So, for example, he was born in Novogrudok, which is where Guminer spent the last decades of his life, 1925 to 1941. He uh, was the head of the Vilna. He was the head of the. Uh, of the Vilna Society for Jewish Artists. My mother was part of the Vilna Society for Jewish Artists. He taught art in Vilna. My mother taught art in Vilna. He was teaching art in Vilna when my parents fled from Warsaw to Vilna, and then from Vilna, of course, to, as I mentioned, to Japan. Did they know him? I have no idea. But the parallels or some of the touch points were so intimate that I said, I must include both this drawing and I must say something to honor this artist because his end was unfortunate. He was put in the uh, Vilna ghetto the year that my parents fled because they got the transit visas to Japan. He was uh, uh, deported to the Vilna ghetto where he died. The last reason I decided and wanted so much to put this uh, image in, besides honoring this artist and the kind of uh, parallels to, uh, to, to my Gumner family, was it's actually part, I think, of a genre, which is interesting. It reminded me of Rembrandt's famous painting of Jeremiah lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem where he also kind of hovers over a figure that is supposed to represent the, the, the destroyed Jerusalem. And I think my guess is that, um, is that uh, Lebowski had this in mind when he drew this drawing, which ended up as the cover of Guminer's memoir. Can you tell us more about Guminer's upbringing, education, and early life biography. Sure. Uh, he was born in 1886. 
in a uh, town called Mariampol, which is near Vilna. Uh, he, uh, his father was Aaron, uh, and his mother was uh, Hannah. Uh, they either divorced or the mother died. I was, I'm, I haven't yet figured out what happened, but his father Aaron re remarried a woman named Sarah, uh, Sarah Feigen. Uh, but Gumner himself was a product of the first marriage between Aaron and Hannah. My mother was a product of Aaron's second marriage with Sarah. So the relationship between my mother and, and Ellie Gumner, our author, is one of stepbrother and sister, which I actually never knew until I started to research on the family. My mother simply referred to Ellie as her older brother. So uh, he uh, was much older therefore than my mom, but uh, he obviously was around a lot because she really did consider him her close older brother. He had a Hader elementary school uh, education in Mariupol. He went to gymnasium there, this was a um, uh, obviously a middle class, lower middle class family. He attended law school in St. Petersburg from 1907 to 1912. And after law school, rather than practicing law, he ended up working in what we would call now Jewish communal work. In Vilna, he was secretary of an immigration bureau uh, until uh, he was uh, called to Ukraine, where he began work with uh, refugees and uh, victims of, of, of war. Politically, he was always involved. His name, interestingly enough, is on the list of the Russian Socialist Revolutionary Party as a candidate for the elections to the Russian Constituent Assembly, an assembly which was supposed to, supposed to carve out the future of revolutionary Russia, but because of the Bolshevik coup, never occurred. The Bolsheviks were already in power. But Gumner's political home, so to speak, was as a non-Bolshevik socialist, and specifically in a political party called uh, the Farenikte, which was uh, a party that believed it was socialist and believed in what was called territorial autonomy. Uh, historians call parties of that sort, uh, the Bund was such a party with a little bit of a different twist, uh, diaspora nationalism. That is, they believed that um, the socialist revolution would create conditions in each country that would allow Jews to practice as Jews, to establish and develop a, a Jewish cultural life, to develop a, a, a kind of cultural autonomy, not particularly a political autonomy. It could be that, or it could be a cultural autonomy. This was of course, in contrast to the Zionists to believe no. Uh, the future of the Jews will not be in Europe. It'll be in the homeland of, of Palestine. 
and the idea of, uh, of diaspora nationalism was a pipe dream uh, that that just simply wasn't going to happen. But uh, Gumener uh, did believe in uh, he was a, a diaspora nationalist, and that's where he was for uh, many years, but not throughout his life, but for many years. So um, after he finished law school and he worked in Vilna as a Jewish communal worker, he uh, left uh, and uh, was in Ukraine from about 1915 to the beginning of 1921. He worked for every major relief organization in uh, of the of the of the time. The, the most uh, important one, let me uh, just name uh, some of it because this is something that's um, very uh, uh, very important to our history. Uh, the most important one was called ECOPO, which was uh, the Jewish Committee for Aid to War Victims, it was established in 1914 in St. Petersburg. And it was the central organization that provided aid to uh, Ukrainian Jews in this terrible period. Some of, of the organizations that worked with it were ORT, which actually still exists, uh, the Society for Trade and Agricultural Work, the OZE, the Society for the Protection of Health of the Jewish Population, the Kultur League, also a Russian uh, 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 um, organization that um, worked for cultural betterment of the Jews. He worked for the JDC, as I mentioned, the Joint Distribution Committee, which was established in 1914 in the United States in order to help the Jews of Poland uh, and Ukraine and Palestine. He worked for them. Even after the uh, establishment of, uh, even after the Sovietization and of aid work after the Soviets took over in 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 Ukraine, he even worked for for the Jewish Public Committee to Aid Jewish Pogrom Victims, which was supposed to be a collaboration between the Joint Distribution Committee and the Soviet aid organizations. It ended up not to be, but. Gumener worked for them as well. So he worked for all of the major aid organizations, which makes him really an interesting character in, in terms of looking at what aid was like in this period in Podolia. In your perspective, should the massacres against Jews in Ukraine during World War I and the Russian Civil War and Russian Revolution be considered genocide? Why or why not? Can you comment on the relevance or yeah. applicability of that term? Is it the wrong term to use? Well, it's an interesting question. Again, it's a little bit of a philosophical question because uh, even the term pogrom is, uh, is, is, is not a clear term, although Gumner himself uses it, but contemporary uh, historians, Gumner wasn't a historian, but contemporary historians, especially the work of David Engel, call into question not so much the word pogrom but its usage uh, and has some interesting discussions about 
what do we mean by pogrom? Uh, and that is an interesting discussion. I think it's the same thing with genocide to some extent. Genocide may be easier to pin down because we've been using the term since World War II in a pretty consistent manner uh, to mean the uh, intentional eradication of an entire group, what I call the other before. Uh, it doesn't appear that the pogrom period in uh, in Europe, in Eastern Europe, falls under that rubric because th there was no intent to um, to get rid to to kill uh, all Jews, men, women, and children in a particular territory. In fact, uh, as historians know, even in, in Nazi Germany, it wasn't really until uh, 1940, 1941, that the policy against Jews turned genocidal. The policy towards German Jews, for example, when the Nazis came to power was, quote unquote, encouraged emigration. It was the same thing in Poland in the interwar period. Uh, Pogroms in Poland and in uh, Europe and in Ukraine were more um, revenge, uh, perceived revenge against Jews who were perceived to uh, sympathize with the uh, Bolsheviks or perceived claims against the Jews that Jews were... Um, economically exploiting the Ukrainian uh, peasant. Uh, they were, pogroms were uh, opportunistic uh, because Jews were the largest minorities in, in villages and, and towns. They were perceived to be more Russophile than Ukraine in towns. So all of these things were the rationale for uh, attacks against Jews, but they were not a wholesale uh, policies to kill every man, woman, and, and, and child. There were pogroms, after all, in which no Jews were killed, or very few Jews were killed, but there was vast plunder, and those were still called pogroms. So, no, I would not say it was genocidal. What happened to Guminer and his family later in life after the events of this memoir were over? Uh, well, it's, it's sad. Uh, Guminer uh, leaves uh, Podolia in Ukraine in uh, late 1920, beginning 1921. Uh, and... Um, in 1925, moves to Novogrodok, which is now in Belarus, near Minsk. Uh, he marries uh, in Vilna and has a son named Pinchas. When he moves to Novogrodok, he has, uh, he and his wife, Rachel, have a daughter named Genya. 
while he's in Novogrudok, she teaches French, and Gumner is again involved in Jewish communal work, especially uh, work with the Jewish orphanage in Novogrudok. He continues to work for the Joint Distribution Committee. He apparently travels, this I found from the Joint Distribution Committee archives, he travels to Czechoslovakia, he travels uh, to other, to Bialystok, other parts of, 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 of Eastern Europe uh, in order to bring aid to especially children who were refugees from World War I. Uh, so he continues to be an activist. He even served as a councilman on the Novogrudok um uh, city council. But then in July of 1940, uh, the uh, Nazi Germany attacks the Soviet Union and they push east and they uh, enter Novogudok. And sometime within, this was in July 1940, either in late 1940 or early 1941, uh, Ellie and his wife, uh, Rachel, and their daughter, Genya, were shot. What happens to Pinchas, his older, their older son, is, is becomes a mystery, which I unraveled in the course of doing this project in, in a most dramatic way, Ari, in a most dramatic way. I tried to find out what happened to Pinchas, and I just couldn't. All I knew, all I knew is that he had survived and that he had uh, lived his adult life in Moscow as a scientist. I could not find any other information on him. So I submitted the manuscript to Slavica in October of 2021. And I wrote in the introduction, just what I told you, his son Pinchas somehow survived the Holocaust and lived out his life in, in uh, Moscow. I submit the manuscript in October. And in November, I get an email written in Russian with Google Translate from Moscow saying, my name is Sasha. I am the grandson of Ellie Guminer. And if you're interested in us communicating, please let me know. The grandson of Ellie Guminer, who of course I had no information, did not know that he existed, did not know anything. How did he find me? He was doing genealogical work in Moscow, where he lives. And he came across my name in Jewish Gen, another source, by the way, that I used uh, greatly, especially to figure out the various little towns and shtetlachs, shtetls that uh, uh, Gord Guminer worked and, and provided aid. And he found my name as a as a researcher. Um, um, Michael Guminer Nutkevich, Michael Eli Nutkevich, uh, and he reached out. It was a very moving moment for me. He didn't know that his grandfather, Eli, had written a memoir. And of course, I didn't know what happened to Pinchas, his father. And then he was able to kind of fill in the rest of the story, which is that Pinchas was a university student when the Germans entered Novogrudok. Uh, and uh, when uh, he was a university student in uh, Lvov, Lviv, and when the um, Nazis took Poland, uh, Pinchas simply moved 
so far east that uh, to in Russia that um, the German army never arrived there, and that's how he was saved. And he ended up living his life in um, in 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 Soviet Union in Moscow. Indeed, he was a scientist, and he had uh, a son, Sasha. And this is now uh, the Sasha, the, who my cousin, newfound cousin, who I communicate with and who I just sent this book, this memoir to him so he can read the memoir of his grandfather. What can you tell us about the Red Army? What new revelations are conveyed in this memoir about the history of the Red Army? Uh, I'd, I'd just say a, a, a few words um, about, about that. Um, the, uh, the, of course, you know, the goal of the Red Army, as I mentioned at the beginning, was really basically twofold. One was to defeat the White Army, the volunteer or White Army, which hoped to undo the Russian Revolution. And the other was to put down the uh, the independence movement uh, of, of Ukraine. When the pogroms began, as I mentioned before, uh, Gumaner tells us that much, at least of the intelligentsia and the activists turn away from the Ukrainian National Republic uh, and turn to the the Bolsheviks, not for love necessarily of the Bolsheviks, but because uh, they um, felt that the Bolsheviks would not be as um, program oriented as the uh, as the as the uh, Ukrainian uh, for forces. And by the way, I should I should say by I should say that scholars have more or less um, uh, 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 um, told us that uh, who perpetrated most of the pogroms. So I should really mention that in uh, the 40% of the, um, of the, uh, of the pogroms, and it's estimated there were somewhere between 1,200 and 1,500 pogroms, right? So 40% were perpetrated by the uh, directory, by the forces that represented the Ukrainian National Republic. 25% were perpetrated by what Gumner called insurgents. These were basically warlords uh, and their um, their followers were mainly Ukrainian peasants. Twenty five percent of the um, pogroms were perpetrated by the White Army, right? Seventeen uh, percent were perpetrated by the Red Army. So that already gives you a sense of when you compare it to the other uh, forces that were per perpetrating um, pogroms, and nine percent were perpetrated by peasant bands by one particular uh, present leader, uh, Grigoriev, and 4% and 3% by the Polish army. So when you look at those, you can see that the majority of pogroms, uh, the Jews were basically uh, encountered, when they encountered pogroms, they encountered the forces, Ukrainian forces, whether they were members of the Ukrainian 
uh, army of the national um, uh, Ukrainian National Republic, or they were Ukrainian peasants. That's who mostly they encountered. So therefore, they by and large turned to the um, to the to the Red Army to the Bolsheviks. However, when that was at the beginning, as the Bolsheviks increasingly gained control of Ukraine, and now I'm going to say specifically Podolia, Gumner tells us that life became extremely difficult under the Soviets because the Soviets began to purge dissidents, enemies, and that included socialists even. And not only they began to purge their uh, political opponents, they began to um, push, uh, they began to to uh, to to uh, replace the staff of the uh, aid workers and aid organizations, and even the ones that I mentioned, the Ecopo and Ort and OZE and Culture League and so forth, even JDC, they tried to and insisted that uh, that those aid workers should be replaced by uh, by uh, communists. Uh, yet yet the, those communist aid workers hadn't had the experience. They didn't know what they were doing. So there was an ideology there, the Bolshevik ideology, the communist ideology, in which even the what was supposed to be neutral aid organizations were purged of their staff. And that included Gumener. That's why he decided there was no future for him as an aid worker in Ukraine. He had to leave. He talks at the very end of the memoir about how the Cheka, the secret police of the Bolsheviks, and how the and how even those responsible for aid uh, uh, it, uh, it, it, were uh, purging aid organizations, and that there was really no room for Jewish uh, aid workers, uh, even socialist aid workers, uh, at, at that point. So that was kind of, a, in brief, the evolution. They were first seen as liberators by many, but they ended up also to be problematic occupiers who uh, kind of purged the Jewish presence uh, in uh, in Podolia. What does this book teach us about Petliura? Can you tell us about uh, the way he's sure. depicted here? and what may be learned about him from this memoir's revelations. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, uh, Petluria was, Simon Petluria was a a Russian leader who began as a journalist and uh, work his way up to political positions in the Ukrainian National Republic, and also as uh, a commander in chief of the armies of the Ukrainian National uh, Republic, and it was you know his armies or his troops that uh, oftentimes were the ones who committed 
the pogroms, uh, as I mentioned before, historians more or less think that 40% of the between 1200 and 1500 <clears throat> pogroms were uh, perpetrated by the troops of the directory and the directory was headed by uh, uh, Luria. But uh, he's controversial because there actually is no smoking gun that uh, Luria uh, 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 agreed to or instigated or ordered his troops to perpetrate pogroms. In fact, there's evidence also that that um, <clears throat> there were uh, directives directives from the uh, directory that uh, that pogroms were not allowed. That people who per perpetrated pogroms in the name of the directory in the name of the Ukrainian National Republic would be punished. Still. Many Jews, including at the time, including Guminer, do not paint a, a, a positive picture of Petluria. Uh, Guminer clearly thinks that Petluria did not do all he could to um, intervene and even allow the investigation of uh, pogroms in in the in this period, and so Petluria in the memoir is not a uh, a, a positive figure. The reason, other reason that Petluria is very controversial, is that in 1926 he was assassinated by a young Jew named Sholem Schwartzbart uh, in Paris, and Schwartzbart was. Said that he mur he assassinated Petluria as revenge for Petluria's role in perpetrating pogroms and killing uh, uh, Schwartzbart's uh, parents. Uh, Schwartzbart was put on trial and actually was found innocent. Was acquitted by the court in um, in 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 Paris, but Petluria. Is remained controversial because uh, Ukrainians, after World War One and especially after World War Two, continued to see him as a nationalist who fought for Ukrainian independence. So he was considered uh, a uh, a hero uh, to 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 Ukrainian nationalists, understandably. On the other hand, there were Jews who saw him as a villain, as a as a person who led the armies, who uh, per perpetrated you know forty percent of the pogroms. So it's a double faced kind of image that we have of Petluria, and I think that the uh, that scholars are still kind of debating this uh, th this question. Again, David Engel, the historian David Engel, has done a lot of work in this area as well, which is invaluable for us to kind of understand the uh, Petluria controversy and the story that continues after Petluria himself uh, uh, went into exile, uh, first to Poland and then ended up in, in Paris 
uh, until his assassination by Sholem Schwarzbart in 1926. There are many pogroms presented in the book. Two that feature most prominently in the memoir are the Proskurov pogrom and the Felstein pogrom. Can you narrate and describe the events of these pogroms to our listeners? Yeah, well, I, I, I think that um, I um, had uh, kind of addressed those before. What uh, uh, Just to uh, kind of remind our, our listeners uh, that these are two towns which are uh, northeast of the uh, of, of Komenets Podosk, which is where kind of the headquarters for Gumener uh, where he, from which he took various uh, trips to deliver aid to um, to the, the Jewish communities in peril, but their significance is simply because they were the first pogroms that uh, in which great numbers of Jews were killed. As I mentioned before, pogroms don't necessarily uh, entail. Uh, death and large numbers of death of Jews. They could Jews. They could in, entail plunder as well, and and they did entail that. They entailed plunder, rape, uh, disfigurement, uh, and and killings. But uh, but Proskurov and Felsten were the first large ones, and and since they were perpetrated by the armies of the Directory, by the armies of the Ukrainian National Republic. They were a tremendous shock to Jews who hoped that they maybe could be part of the emerging Ukrainian state, uh, and that's really what the what what happened. Um, uh, that's that's it's their significance. Gumner says that it was so terrible, so shocking um, that uh, that people Jews. Uh, didn't even realize until the next morning that there had been a pogrom. They were woken up in the morning by the cries of other Jews across town because apparently Semesenko, uh, uh, who was the, the general, did not even allow the Jews to be buried until later. So the corpses were on the street until you know for a, a few days and um this was um uh really quite shocking another little detail which really struck me was Gumner says that when um the pogromists went out into the town to look for jews uh they brought with them doctors and nurses why in case the jews would fight back and some of the pogromists would be injured, there would be doctors and nurses to take care of the pogromists. Uh, he tells also another just horrifying uh, story in the memoir of a uh, doctor who told his assistant to go out and, uh, and kill. Uh, and the assistant comes back and says, you know, there was a beautiful Jewish girl uh, who I uh, ran into and I just, I couldn't kill her. I didn't have the heart to kill her. So the doctor himself went and murdered this Jewish girl, uh, a name who we don't know. Uh, in another source that I found, uh, the, I, the doctor was uh, identified and uh, I learned that he was probably executed by the Bolsheviks in 1920. But those are the kind of details. They're details that I couldn't, you know, fully flesh out, 
but they're there in, in, in Gumner's memoir. What was life like in Podolia for Jews? Can you describe its social and cultural geography? Well, Gumner doesn't talk much about, about uh, it. I think that the life in Podolia was very, very much like much of uh, life in, uh, in, in, in Ukraine in the early uh, 20th century, most Jews uh, uh, were either in, uh, Jews were in towns uh, and they had, they were a large percentage of the area that, that, that borderland area that we call the Kresy, that Polish word meaning a borderland. So we're talking about Eastern Poland, Western Ukraine. Uh, they, they were um, large, they had a large presence in, 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 in villages as well. Uh, um, but most of the work that they did were as artisans and merchants, uh, owners of taverns, uh, because it was such an underdeveloped area, regions, Podolia especially, Gumner says that there wasn't much leadership, Jewish leadership there. And it was almost like a forgotten place. Uh, and and he, he, he felt that uh, it was very important for him to remain among the people. For several times he talks about that uh, in order to um, give help to Jews who were forgotten, as he kind of puts it, by the leadership in Kiev and the leadership in Moscow and, and Warsaw and so forth. So definitely was a, a back, a back, it was the hinterland, so to speak, uh, of the Russian Empire. But, but it was significant in the sense that it you know, was near uh, Galicia, and it was a place where Polish troops passed through uh, and uh, Romanian troops passed through. So, he, so the White Army was there, the Red Army. So it was a battlefield, but it was very much a poor, a poor area uh, for both Jews and Ukrainian peasants. Can you comment on the magnitude of death and destruction among Jews in the Ukraine pogroms? Uh, yeah, the, uh, I, uh, as I mentioned, the, we don't have exact figures, but the research indicates that um, there were, uh, well, we should say something maybe about the uh, the uh, kind of numbers of 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 people that we're, we're, we're talking about in um, in this area. You might have mentioned, I'm not sure, but uh, Podolia was, as I mentioned, a, um, a administrative unit in the Russian Empire, a little corner southeast Ukraine. There were about 3 million people. 12% uh, were Jewish. Uh, the headquarters or the capital for a long time of, of uh, Podolia was Komenets Podolsk, uh, which had about 23,000 Jews, which was about half of the population. 80% um, of all pogroms occurred in the three regions of Podolia, Volhynia, and Kiev. 80%. So that's what we now call central Ukraine. And um, I mentioned before that the, uh, uh, how many pogroms, 1,200 to 1,500, 
Now, the estimates of how many people were actually killed in the pogrom period, 1917, let's say, to 1920, is all over the place. Uh, They range from 50 to 60,000 to up up to 200,000, maybe even more. And it's very likely that the larger figures were uh, are are more accurate than the lower figures, because the larger figures um, uh, were more more recent figures, and so there was more archival work to 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 go into. Uh, also, what's not included uh, in in terms of deaths is how many people were maimed, uh, were were displaced, were uh, d- died of typhoid, which is a big problem at the time, were killed as they fled uh, on at railroad stations, uh, who lie in unmarked graves, who made it across the border, but were still victims of pogroms. All of those were victims of pogroms. And uh, the number is huge. You know, and, uh, obviously, it, it, half a million more, uh, it, it, certainly. Uh, so we don't have exact numbers, but what we do know is this is the largest, this pogrom period, the number of Jews killed and displaced, is the largest number up until the Holocaust, which was just a short 20, 25 years later. How did Jewish organizations provide aid to Ukraine? What were the challenges involved in bringing this about? Uh, well, we have to kind of divide aid into two periods, uh, one of which there's a lot more research than the other. So there's a lot of research, a fair amount of research into the period from World War One, the start of World War One, 1914 to, let's say, 1917, 1918. Because most of the uh, that's when Ecopo started uh, in uh, Saint Petersburg. That's when the JDC was organized in uh, in the United States. They were to help those Jews in Eastern Europe um, and uh, Poland, Romania, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, uh, and also Palestine. So we have a fair amount of activity back and forth between uh, St. Petersburg, uh, uh, Washington, New York, Warsaw, uh, and and those areas. However, once the Russian Civil War begins, it was very, very difficult for aid organizations to enter the battlefield areas. And because the Russian Civil War, as Gumner makes eminently clear, entailed the 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 ebb and flow of 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 armies and militias and anarchistic peasant bands and so forth coming in and out and in and out of villages and 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 towns uh there was no stability there was no stability it was very difficult you could have an army uh, a, a battalion of Red Army soldiers coming in for five days, and then they're driven out by uh, by by peasant bands, and they're there for two days a week, 
and then they're driven out by Polish troops, you know, and so on and so forth. So there was no stability to uh, in terms of uh, the ability to enter these areas. It was extremely dangerous. In fact, the JDC, the Joint Distribution Committee, really didn't do uh, its, it, it wasn't an effective agency, aid agency in Podolia, just speaking about Podolia now, and and uh, until uh, quite late, until July 1920. July 1920, the pogrom period was almost finished by then because of how exceedingly dangerous it, it, it was to provide aid. In fact, one of the most notorious events and tragic events, and Gumner does talk about this, was uh, that uh, two American aid workers, Israel Friedlander, who was a very um, well-known Bible scholar in the United States, and Rabbi Bernard Cantor, both who went to Ukraine as investigators, were killed and near Podolia, in, in Podolia, actually, near, near Komenets Podolsk, because what they did is, what, what was common is for aid workers to wear American uniforms, because they thought, uh, the, the JDC thought, well, if they wear American uniforms, the Poles won't touch them, and the Russians won't touch them, right, the Bolsheviks won't, they'll be safe. And this was a period in which the, those two men, among, with other investigators and aid workers, were in the area for a very short period of time of stability. Uh, but they entered it, and what happened was that they were in a car going from one town to the other, and apparently Russian troops, Bolshevik troops, mistaken them for Polish soldiers and officers, and shot their car and killed these two American aid workers, Israel Friedlander and Bernard Cantor. It was exceedingly dangerous to 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 come, uh, especially after to 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 provide aid in in 1918, 1919, especially in 1920. However, before that period, uh, aid was funneled through Ekopo. Uh, in in with its headquarters in in uh, in Saint Petersburg, and all of the other collateral Jewish organizations that worked under or with Ekopo, um, Gumner was one of the representatives uh, for aid work. Uh, generally, they uh, funneled money to aid workers to try to buy uh, a food stuff. Uh, or they uh, attempted to um, uh, bring very basic things like underwear, uh, blankets. If there was, if the infrastructure of a town was was still uh, pretty much intact, they tried to build. Um, uh, they tried to uh, strengthen uh, hospitals or orphanages. <clears throat> excuse me, or soup kitchens as best they could. <laughs> Later on, uh, Jews from the United States and England uh, sent remittances through the JDC to Jews in, in, in those countries. But it was, you know, almost impossible really to bring uh, aid to, uh, to, um, to those places. L let me, let me maybe read from 
one little section of Gumner's diary that gives you a vivid sense of of the complexity of getting aid from the United States to to Ukraine, if you will. So this is from an internal report uh, dated April through December 1920, JDC. So here's here here, here it goes. $320,000 were advanced by the Russian Zionist organization called Merkaz to the Petrograd, St. Petersburg, relief committee called ECOPO, refunded by the JDC in June and July 1919. No communication with Russia until February 1920, when a special messenger brought a letter from Merkaz to Boris Goldberg stating that in view of the terrible distress, the Merkaz again advanced to Ecopo 133,000 in the hopes that the JDC will refund the money and asking that Goldberg authorize an additional advance to Ecopo. Thereupon, Goldberg cabled the JDC, offering to instruct a new advance of $250,000 to the ECOPO, if authorized by the JDC, which cable has remained unanswered. Simultaneously, Goldberg instructed the Merkaz to discontinue advances until an affirmative reply had been received by the JDC. Does that sound confusing? Absolutely, because in that example, listen to how many organizations were involved. There was the local Zionist organization in Ukraine. It initiated a request to its representative in London via a cable, a cable to Copenhagen. Why? Because there was no direct communication to St. Petersburg. The cable went from Ukraine to Copenhagen, from Copenhagen to New York. Then the the funds were approved uh, to be sent to Copenhagen. Why? Because there were no banks in Ukraine at the time. And then they were sent from Copenhagen to St. Petersburg. But then this report also says that for six months, from June, June and July 1919 to July to February 1920, there was no communication from Russia. That's a complicated but a very uh, 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 startling example of how difficult it was to provide aid in, in the pogrom period in, in Ukraine. Can you comment on the roles of the various Zionist and non-Zionist parties in the in the events depicted. Okay. Uh, one of the themes uh, uh, in the memoir, and, and it's one of the, again, tragic themes, is not only aid, but is also um, uh, the discord between political parties in, uh, in Podolia. Uh, this is not an easy topic. Uh, as I mentioned, Gumner was a member of the Vereinigte, uh, uh, which was a non-Bolshevik socialist party that believed in political and cultural autonomy in a socialist Ukraine. 
and it didn't have to be only in, in the socialist Ukraine. They were an international, well, they were East, they were uh, a party in Poland as well. Uh, but one of the things that you, that Gumner writes about is that Jewish political parties in Podolia didn't get along. Not only did they not get along, that there were periods of time in which they even undermined one another. And broadly speaking, and of course here he's prejudiced as well. He's speaking as a socialist, right? But for him, the um, the discord between Jewish political parties is between, broadly speaking, the Zionist parties versus the diaspora nationalist parties. So the diaspora nationalist parties, as we mentioned before, were the Bund, a socialist party, his own far party, Vereinigte, also a socialist party, uh, Poaletzion, the workers of Zion, was socialist as well, and, and Zionist. Uh, but he also talks about uh, other Zionist parties like the Youth of Zion, or Young Zionists, which was a left-wing Zionist party. And there was also the Kehila, the traditional uh, communal organization in the pre-war period. Uh, and they didn't get along. And uh, Gumner often talks about how tragic that was. And if only they could have worked together not as many Jews would have suffered. Now, whether that's true or not uh, is speculation. It, to, to me, it seems that the pogroms would have rolled along whether Jews were united as, as one or not. The only thing that might have uh, uh, precluded pogroms were if the, uh, the, um, the Ukrainian National Republic had been strong, uh, and its army had uh, been uh, had cracked down on on pogromists. If the Ukrainian National um, uh, Republic had al allowed uh, Jewish self defense organizations, what they did not, even the Bolsheviks didn't allow that. But nevertheless, the pogroms, uh, short of that kind of policy, the pogroms probably couldn't have. Uh, been stopped. Uh, and so Gumner's claim that um, the Jews not working together uh, really um, was, um, uh, you know, had a big impact on the victims. I don't know. I'm not sure. But it is difficult and painful to read the competition between uh, Zionist and Zionist and socialist at the time. And there's some reasons for this. First of all, remember that the the term political party in Eastern Europe meant something very different than what Americans think of as political party. America, for us, a, a political party is simply the instrument by which we elect people, people who will carry out certain policies, but that's that's the role of a political party. In Eastern Europe and Western Europe, but especially in Eastern Europe, a political party was much more inclusive. A political party offered services to its members, to its followers. So, for example, the Bund 
which was in the interwar period in Poland, the largest mass movement party among Jews. The Bund offered uh, education. The Bund had youth groups. The Bund had sports leagues. The Bund had women's organization. The Bund had hiking groups. The Bund had choirs. That's what I mean by parties offering much more inclusive services and loyalties to their to their to their members. Consequently, fundraising, I'll use a contemporary term, fundraising really meant a competition for providing services, this whole gamut of, of services to the Jewish community. Who was going to provide these services? Was it going to be the traditional kahila run by the rabbis and the parnasim, the, the balabatim, you know, the, the uh, more uh, uh, um, the richer um, uh, members of the of the community, or was it going to be by the the Zionist organizations who also ran this whole gamut of social services and cultural services and political services, or was it going to be the the socialists, the Bund, Vainikta, you know, which organization? That was the competition for 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 loyalty, so to speak. Of course, there were ideologies. The Zionists had their ideology that at the end, the only solution to the Jewish question was emigration to Palestine. And of course, the diaspora nationalists had their own ideology. No, the socialist revolution, the worldwide revolution will allow Jews to be able to you know, live in uh, Russia and in, in uh, Poland and so forth. Yes, but it was more than ideology. It was a whole gamut of services uh, uh, that was provided. And therefore, when the JDC or ECOPO came with aid, each of the organizations wanted to claim that aid. They argued with the or claimed to the various aid organizations that they were the best, the ones the best uh, able to distribute uh, 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 aid to to the community. <clears throat> and Gumner talks a lot about this um, in a, in a rather prejudicial way, uh, saying that only the socialists really had all the, the whole community at heart, and the Zionists were more self serving and more ideological and so forth. Be it as it may, uh, this is an extremely interesting. Uh, to read about uh, political discord in uh, in 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 this period and tragic as well. What makes Guminer's memoir unique as a Jewish memoir, as a memoir of atrocity, and as a memoir of the Ukrainian pogroms? Well, I think what makes uh, his uh, memoir unique is that it's one of the few memoirs of an aid worker who remained during the worst years of the pogrom period uh, in the killing fields. Um, and also because 
he's not, he's a secondary figure. He's not, as I mentioned at the very beginning, he doesn't have the literary quality of an Ansky or of a Babel or others. He's, he's a simple Jew. Yeah, an educated, a, a young, educated, politically inclined Jew, but not one of the stars of the of of Jewish uh, life in the interwar period. So we get the memoir of a person who is a communal activist, one of probably thousands of unnamed communal activists who worked in Eastern Europe. And uh, and who worked uh, in the theater of war, uh, who who's who didn't write um, uh, memoirs, who wrote reports, whose reports are in various archives, probably will never be translated, uh, and so that I think alone makes his memoir uh, uh, unique as um, as a piece of. Of, of writing uh, and and memory. Look, you, you, he had another. He he felt that he had a moral imperative to write. It was more for him than just a record. It was also a historiographical imperative, so to speak, to to write about this period. He wrote when he wasn't sure that there would be a Jewish community in Ukraine. He didn't know. And so there's a moral quality to you know, what he writes as well. There's an ethical imperative to record, which is very Jewish. Uh, and so I think he stands in for all of those who, you know, workers who couldn't write and didn't write. What can we learn from Guminer about fear and the psychology of fear? it manifests in the memoir well well fear permeates permeates the memoir and i don't know uh, from a psychological point of view uh fear is fear wherever uh, it is um it manifests itself but maybe this gives me an opportunity to read a little passage uh, sure. in, in in which the context is that gumner was in komenets podolsk right and uh, at that point, it was under the uh, uh, the Red Army, and there were not pogroms. And suddenly, they learn that the Ukrainian anarchist peasants were on their way and would probably overrun the uh, the few Red Army soldiers who were in Komenets Poldosk. So he decides to flee Komenets, and this is what he writes. We departed Komenets by foot. Many of us left behind parents, brothers, and sisters. The sound of the artillery barrage grew stronger. The sound was the duel between the Bolsheviks and the Ukrainians. We went to Kitagorod. The entire way was flooded with groups of Jews, young people, workers, merchants, intellectuals, rich and poor, everyone fled. Whole families went, wives with small children. A 72-year-old Jewish woman was with us too. A small number rode, others walked. We went, not knowing where, for the frightened, nervous Jews. We just needed to get up and run. We could not imagine what the future would be like, even what the next morning would bring. 
Many fled simply as they were without a kopeck in their pocket, abandoning their homes and all their possessions. There was only one thought on everyone's mind, flee, save yourselves. If the attack from the Ukrainians had not come so unexpectedly, it might have been possible for the entire Jewish population to have prepared and to have left Komenets. And then he goes on to um, say that they entered this little town, but they immediately left because it was market day. What was the problem? Here, what is what he writes? It was market day. The peasants gathered and were surprised and looked on us as we Jews hurried on. They began to murmur. Already we heard hateful rabble-rousing cries. A, a dread fell on the town. We entered a Jewish home, an inn, and requested a samovar with tea. The owner was frightened and asked that we leave immediately. He said that peasant bandits were wandering around the town searching for young people from Komenets. The peasants, sen sensing that there was no longer any authority in the area and influenced by anti-Semitism and criminal elements, pried upon the Jews in order to rob and kill them. The pogrom fear that the Komenets Jews brought with them infected the Katigorod Jews as well. And so he goes on to talk about how everywhere they went, if they saw a peasant a kilometer away, they were afraid that that peasant would hop on horseback and tell the insurgents uh, that uh, there were Jews there. If you even entered a Jewish home, the owner of the Jewish home was afraid that he, he or she would uh, uh, face the consequences of, 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 of hiding or giving um, uh, aid to, to the fleeing Jews. So it, it was... Uh, terrible. Uh, and he talks about uh, running from place to place, kilometer after kilometer, without any rest, with very little food. Of course, trains were few and were among the most dangerous ways to travel. So a lot of it was by foot or horse and horse and wagon, if they could get a horse and wagon. So it was that that was fear. That was feared, actually, absolutely not knowing, you know, what would happen uh, and, and, and not knowing from regime, regime, what would happen. There's another quotation I'd be curious to ask you about um, where, where you write as follows. It's from page uh, 60 in your uh, prefatory introduction. What broad conclusions can we call from Guminer's experiences? Was it simply that the Jewish groups could not overcome their quote unquote petty disagreements? This is not a fair assessment. Despite the circumstances, each group, rightly or wrongly, sincerely believed that their own visions would shape the very future of the Jewish people. In other words, they trusted that there would be a Jewish future. These were not simply petty differences. As much as they may seem to us today, the array of forces, however, that Jewish communities faced was overwhelming. And the community had neither the power nor the allies to deal with the challenges. Even if the Jewish factions had been united in their response to the terror, there was no power that could stop the pogroms. Can you elaborate on this passage? Yes. Um, I, I felt uh, it was very difficult, Ari, for me to read 
about the, you know, that Hebrew word, Yiddish word, we use it to machlokas, the, the arguments sure. the, uh, between Jews in the midst of this horrific, catastrophic period. It was very painful. It's painful to when we hear about it now in our contemporary time. But I, I didn't want the reader to think, ah, oh, those Jews, they, they were arguing about whether Hebrew uh, should be used in, in orphanages or Yiddish should be used in orphanages while there were pogroms going on 10 kilometers away. Uh, so um, the way I kind of frame and understand this is a little bit the way I understood why Jews during the Holocaust wrote poetry, wrote, uh, sang songs, and so forth, put on plays in ghettos, which was this. There was a belief that there would be a later that there would that Jews would survive, uh, that they were overcome the sorrows of the day to create a better world. People wrote because they expect somebody would be there to read it. If they didn't think so, they probably wouldn't write. And I think that there's analogy to the uh, Machlokas in the uh, pogrom period. Even though they lived through terrible times, they were committed to a Jewish future. And each one thought that that Jewish future, they had different ideas about that Jewish future. The Zionists did, the diaspora nationalists did, but they still believed in that future. And I think that what plays out in uh, the the uh, the this period, when there uh, uh, when these groups in towns are attempting to um, control the funding for aid distribution, or uh, negotiating how what the, should be the proportion of Zionists and socialists in a uh, in an aid committee or in a, in a council, uh, they were still looking at it through the lenses of how do we want to shape Jewish society? How do we want to shape Jewish society? So in a way, in a way, that's a positive thing. It's a positive thing. It, it wasn't simply a self-serving power grab. It was the wish to craft a better life for Jews in the future. Um, so I think that that's, um, that's what I mean, that it would be unfair to just look at, to read the, the disagreements and say, oh, these were petty. It's not, it wouldn't be a fair assessment. However, I like to say just one more thing about, uh, about your, your, my, my statement and your question, what I wrote, you, you know, I, uh, the, the original uh, title of Guminer's Yiddish uh, memoir is A Capital Ukraine Tsvayor in Podolia, a Ukrainian chapter, two years in Podolia. Well, the editors, uh, the uh, Slavica publishers and I decided that, you know, if we left it just like that, 
the average reader wouldn't understand it. I mean, a Ukrainian chapter is already, what does that mean? But Svayu or Podolia, most people don't know where Podolia is. So I added the subtitle, A Jewish Aid Worker's Memoir of Sorrow, partially because it has all the keywords that are important to understand what's in it, Jewish, aid worker, memoir. But why a memoir of sorrow? Because I think that um, that this memoir has such a strong element of despondency, despair, and anguish that's not only rooted in the relentless violence, but also in the powerlessness of Guminer as an aid worker and in the inter-party discord. So it's a sad memoir in the final analysis. And of course, as historians, we know that it ends poorly. Uh, and even more tragic is when you, when you recall Gumner's own end, just the short, what it was that he left in 20, 21. So 20 years later, he himself becomes the victim of Jewish hatred and is killed by the Nazis. So that's why I call it a memoir of sorrow, because that really does permeate the history, I think. As we bring our dialogue to a close, what are you working on now or next as a subsequent or current research project? Well, I think as you um, learned, especially at the beginning of the interview, there's a very uh, personal, very intimate aspect to this uh, project, namely that Ellie Gumner was my uncle. And my discovery, startling and dramatic and moving this discovery of his grandson who lives in Moscow. So I think that one of the things that uh, I would like to do is to kind of delve deeper on the kind of personal side of, 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 of this story and to think about um, uh, trauma across the generations, uh, how does it manifest itself? How does my newly found cousin understand his grandfather and his father's history? Uh, in contrast to what I know and understand about that history from my mother. So I, I, I'm not sure exactly, it's not a formulated uh, project yet, but I, I am interested in the kind of more kind of psychological maybe aspects of this of the story, memory and 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 how we handle memory. I'm greatly inspired by um, Edmund de Waal's The Hair with the Amber Eyes, who also reconstructs his family history with not a lot of information, but is really, it's, it's a reflection on knowing and not knowing a lot about your family. And that's something that I've been thinking about lately a lot. Thank you. Thank you for everything you shared. Thank you for your eloquence and erudition throughout this conversation. And thank you for all the sacrifice that you invested into this book. It's it's a gem and will make a significant moral and scholarly contribution. Thank you, Ari. 
to our listeners. I'm your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat, on the New Books and Jewish Studies channel. I've been in dialogue today with Dr. Michael Nutkiewicz. We have been discussing the new book that he has come out with as translator and editor, Ellie Guminer's memoir, A Ukrainian Chapter, A Jewish Aid Worker's Memoir of Sorrow, Podolia 1918-1920, published in Bloomington, Indiana by Slavica Publishers 2022. Thank you.